Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Today, the MacArthur Memorial is hosting Al Barnes, the Virginia National Guard command historian and author of the book In a Strange Land, The American Occupation of Germany. Al has been very gracious and has agreed to sit down with us today to talk about the occupation of Germany after World War I. Welcome. It's good to have you today. Well, thank you. Uh, It's good to be here. Before we get started, I'd like to kind of set the scene and remind the listeners that the Doughboys of 1918 were not so very different than we are. They knew how to drive cars. They knew how a phone worked. They knew about movements by rail. They'd seen airplanes. And so sometimes we think of them as black and white characters, but they weren't. They were real people, and they you could take them and set them down today, and, and within a couple of weeks, they would adjust nicely. Now, they were different in some ways. They were a lot smaller than us. Their diets were different. We often have a feeling that they lived a much healthier lifestyle than we do, and that actually isn't so. As the Army found out when it tried to draft a four-million-man army, it took almost 20 million draftees to build that army because so many had physical, mental problems that they couldn't be accepted into the Army. So they were different, but they were much like us. Very interesting. So today we're going to be talking about the actual occupation of Germany at the end of the war. I've done some reading, and it appears that the Allies and the German government by the end of the war in 1918 are very anxious to quickly start the occupation. Can you kind of set the stage for what's going on in Germany at the end of the war? Absolutely. It's a it's an interesting uh, conundrum the Germans were in. Not only were they losing in the in the front lines on the Western Front. They're losing the home front. Uh, There were riots in the street. The four years of blockade had made the people very angry. There were uh, groups of people known as separatists who believed that the Rhine section of Germany should become a separate country and away from the Prussian oppressors. There were also royalists who still believed in the Kaiser. There were Bolsheviks who were communists, and most of them were influenced from the east. And there were also right-wing militia groups called the Freikorps. So you've got these massive street battles going on in Berlin and Nuremberg and Munich. And some of them in towns like Koblenz, uh, which was going to be in the American zone, they're worried that the Bolsheviks were going to take over and run the city. So with the armistice being signed on November 11th, the American army took a couple of days to gather itself and start preparing to take part in the occupation. Meanwhile, Germany is falling apart at the seams. And so both sides were realizing that, man, we better get somebody into Germany very quickly and, and calm down some of this, some of these groups and, and get control back of, of the cities. Did the U.S. Army have any prior experience or institutional knowledge of how to conduct an occupation, or was this brand new for them? That's a great question because there was some institutional knowledge. Remembering that most of the generals in the U.S. Army at the time had served in the Philippines or in Cuba or had been part of the Veracruz expedition and had some experience governing other countries. The problem was nobody had ever had any experience governing a European country, so they didn't know what to expect. The Marines that were attached to the occupation force, and there were quite a number of them, had a lot of experience. They'd been running constabularies in Haiti and Dominican Republic and Nicaragua. But again, not European countries. So frankly, the the American army was kind of faced with a teach yourself as you go along. And when they tried to learn from their their allies, who were much more experienced in having colonies and, and occupying each other's territory, 
they found that the differences between the British, the Belgian, and the French methods were so great, they figured out they're just going to have to figure find their own way to do it. Can you describe the American zone of occupation? It's, it's interesting. The, uh, if you picture in your mind a, a four-layer cake, and the top layer would be the Belgian army, the next layer would be the English army, or the British army, around Cologne, the third layer would be the American army with its headquarters in Koblenz, and the fourth layer would be the French army. Now, the American sector of, this, of the occupation zone was going to be 2,500 square miles, and there were over a million Germans living in that sector in the two major cities of Koblenz and Trier. The zone is very interesting because it, the Rhine Valley runs north and south, and the Mosul Valley runs east and west, and the two bisect right exactly in the center of the American zone. So it was very hilly, very mountainy, constantly raining. You know, it was a typical Rhine River Valley day. It was every day in Germany. It, there wasn't much sunshine, but it was a beautiful country. And the Americans were surprised to see, after the devastation in France, how undevastated the air occupation zone was. So it, that gave them some ideas that perhaps the Germans weren't as bad off as they thought they were. How were American units chosen for occupation duty? Was this kind of a random assignment, or did they intentionally select different units to go into the occupation? Keeping in mind that the American Army had just completed the Meuse-Argonne campaign, which is the biggest battle in American history, with over a million soldiers fighting it out with the Germans in some very tough terrain, Pershing had to make a selection. He, he was going to create an entire army that was going to become the Army of Occupation. And in fact, the patch that's still worn today by Third Army reflects that heritage. It's an A in the center of an O, signifying Army of Occupation. Pershing knew that this was going to be a tough mission. He, he knew the troops were, were beat, but he decided that he was going to have to send his very best soldiers. He, he chose his the Big Red One, the 1st Division. He chose the 2nd Division, which was half Marine, half Army. He chose the 3rd Division, which was noted for its defense of the Marne and became known as the Marne Division. And he chose the 4th Division, which was the Ivy Division, uh, which is symbolic because their patch, they were called the Ivies because they had a Roman numeral IV for 4, so they became the Ivy Division. He also knew that to maintain support for this, he was going to have to involve the National Guard because with almost 50 governors at the time backing the war effort, he knew that if there were Guard units along the Rhine, he would have support of those governors a smart move, and it paid off. So he selected two of his very best National Guard divisions. He picked the 42nd Division, which is the Rainbow Division, and he picked the 32nd Division, which was the you know, the Michigan and Wisconsin National Guard. Now, that was a significant choice, because not only was the 32nd a very good division and rated as one of his very best, almost half the guys in that division were of uh, German origin. And so many of them spoke German. That's a nice thing to have in your unit when you're going to go occupy parts of Germany. In fact, as they're marching through uh, Germany to get to their occupation sites, one of the intelligence officers in the 32nd Division discovered that his uncle was the mayor of Bitburg, one of the towns they were marching through. So that led to some, you know, it, it automatically set people on the right foot that when they could communicate with the people they're occupying. Now, the last two divisions that, that uh, he chose for his occupation army were also uh, chosen because they were uh, extremely efficient organizations. There was the 89th and the 90th Divisions. Now, they were National Army Divisions and mainly made up of conscripts at the time, but both had had very good combat records and proven themselves. Uh, the 90th in particular, coming from Texas and Oklahoma, had been uh, one of his most useful assault units in, at the very end of the war. I think you've already touched on this a little bit, but what would American soldiers have seen or experienced as they traveled from France into Germany? 
you know, it was a, an interesting time. They just, right up until November 11th, had been shooting it at the Germans and being shot back at and seeing their friends killed and wounded. And after only six days of rest, they were put back on the road to, uh, to march through Belgium and Luxembourg and into Germany to take on this occupation duty. And one part that often gets forgotten is that uh, a lot, of, large part of the American army was horse-drawn. And the horses had suffered just as badly during the, uh, during the Argonne campaign as the soldiers had. And so uh, Pershing and his number one assistant, uh, George Marshall, set down an edict saying that the eight divisions going in to be in the occupation force would draw the better, healthier horses from the divisions not going. You know, that's a, a recipe for disaster in most cases. Most people are going to give away their least healthy horses. But in this case, the, the American soldiers played it square and gave up their best animals. And so by 1 December, the Americans were, uh, were on the German border and ready to cross into Germany. Now, on a side note to that, which shows uh, some of the experiences of the Americans moving, you know, because at the same time they're having, there was a terrible... Uh, epidemic of mumps and the Spanish flu had gone through the army and they were and soldiers were were dropping by hundreds on the march they're passing through Luxembourg and now Luxembourg was in the midst of a revolution also and one of the revolutionaries approached General Pershing and said look we can't guarantee the safety of your soldiers because uh, this is a country under revolutionary control and Pershing's chief of staff cut in front and said look friend if anybody gets hurt it's going to be you first and there will be no revolution while the American army is coming through and he was right. The movement of 250,000 American soldiers through Luxembourg went without incident. In fact, the Americans were amazed to see that the Luxembourgers had attempted to make American flags and hung them out their windows and had no idea what American flag looked like. So it became a contest to see what the most unusual looking American flag was in Luxembourg. Now, there were also two more full divisions of soldiers that Pershing sent just into Luxembourg alone, and that included another National Guard division, another active army division. So, so Pershing wasn't taking any chances. It, into 2,500 square miles, he was putting a quarter million doughboys and backing them up with another 50,000 in Luxembourg just to keep their lines of communication safe. Now, they marched through the devastated areas of France, Belgium, into untouched Luxembourg, and finally into, into the city of Trier in, uh, in Germany. And again, each, each step of the way, there was less and less damage. And so the, the soldiers were a little suspicious that perhaps the Germans had, were up to something. But in fact, the Germans were hungry. They were diseased. They had uh, gone four years without any, uh, any outside trade coming in. So they, they were suffering too. But the other thing that amazed the, the doughboy so much were the thousands of children. Everywhere they went, there were children everywhere. They were followed by packs of them. And if you look at the pictures of that first morning in Trier as the army came in, you'll see guys in Revolutionary Council armbands, you know, glaring at the American soldiers and a whole line of kids looking for candy and chocolate. So, you know, it was a, a mixed bag of what you were going to get. Can you describe the tone or the reception of the occupation? What role did civil affairs officers play? At first, the tone was fearful, and, and that's understandable. The German army retreating from France had passed down these very same roads and had warned all the farmers and villagers, oh, the Americans are coming and they are going to steal everything that isn't nailed down. The Germans also have a general impression of Americans as cowboys. They thought that, you know, they'd be coming in wearing six-shooters and they were wild Westerners and there'd be all sorts of trouble from them. What happened, in fact, was they were surprised that these guys came in, marched through their towns, for the most part were very uh, respectful. As I said, at least one guy in every group spoke German. 
at night they would be billeted into people's houses and it's hard to stay angry at people who are cooking your food and sharing the fireplace with you on these cold winter nights. Uh, so very quickly the, the Americans had a very favorable impression. Now to the north, the British were kind of the same. The, the, they were having the same effect. Germans were surprised that the, they, there was a destruction. To the south, however, the French were just raising holy hell with the, uh, with the local people. If a French officer was walking down a sidewalk, everybody on that sidewalk had to get off and walk in the street out of his way. You know, and so each occupation army was setting a different kind of standard for their behavior. And speaking of the tone, the Americans were determined that nothing untoward was going to happen in their zone during their time in Germany. Immediately posted, these are the list of things you will not do. In fact, I brought a list of some of the, the crimes that were charged in the first four months in Germany. And these are just general topics. Sale of prohibited alcoholic drinks. 517 people were charged. Unauthorized sale of wine or beer, 335. Unlawful possession of U.S. property, 1,580 people were charged with that. And the list goes on. Violation of circulation, 2,000. Well, that's interesting because what the Americans said was, we're going to control the occupation zone. If you want to go from this town to that town, you need permission from the local American commander to do that. So many of the Germans you know, would stand in line for hours waiting for their turn to get a pass while others circumvented the system and just went anyway. And when they were caught without passes, the Americans, you got a quarter of a million doughboys acting as policemen. They arrested everybody they found. Drunkenness, only 17 were charged with that. Unlawful possession of deadly weapon, 302 were arrested. Insulting language concerning the U.S. Army, 143. So you can see it's kind of a heavy tone put on top of it. And, and later, the, when the American Army did their after-action report, they realized that perhaps they'd taken the wrong tone at first because they made the right decisions, but they had implications they hadn't planned on. For instance, and this is just a quick example, uh, one of the first things in every town, the Army said, would confiscate all weapons. Nobody can have any kind of rifle or pistol in their home. So you bring them in, and you, they lock them up in the, in the town government buildings. And then a short while later, the Germans came in and said, we'd like to have boar hunts so that we can rid the valleys of some of these wild boars that, that roam around. And the Americans said, you're kidding. We're not going to let Germans roam around with loaded weapons in our, in our area. No, you can't do that. Well, they didn't realize that for a lot of the farmers and a lot of the large forest owners, having the boar hunts, they licensed them, and that was one of their sources of income. But the Americans didn't care. They said, no loaded weapons in our zone. That means none. But then a couple of weeks later, when the German farmers came in and said, look, the boars are eating our crops. We, you've got to let us have the boar. So all of a sudden, they realized, yeah, okay, you can have your hunts. You can issue your licenses. And, and so go out and, and take care of the boar problem. By the same token, the Americans were known for heavy penalties for those crimes that they did uh, did impose. For example, uh, and this is just during January of 1919, disrespect to an American officer, uh, 90 days jail, buying stores or black market from an American soldier, 60 days in jail, selling liquor after hours, 60 days, stealing government property, 90 days, selling liquor to soldiers, 60 days, having government property and traveling without circulation, 30 days, selling cognac for resale to soldiers, 30 days, prostitution, 30 days. Uh, and, and the real hardcore criminal was a guy named Robert Imhoff in Koblenz, who was listed as a degenerate for selling wine after hours, having stolen government property, and furnishing civilian clothes to American soldiers. He was charged and sentenced to 90 days. And as far away as Berlin, people were saying, my God, the Americans love their, their heavy penalties. 
but the, the Americans wanted to be fair. And over time, the Germans came to realize that the Americans were punishing their own soldiers equally harsh like for, for these same, any of these same crimes. So uh, the firm but fair actually, in the end, won a lot of Germans over to the American side, and, and they became, began to look on them favorably. Civil affairs was an interest. Again, this was a whole new experience for the Americans. So you move eight full combat divisions into this section of Germany. And what happened was they tried to organize those sectors for those divisions in terms of the American units, where the highest headquarters would have the highest civil affairs guy. The uh, in each town would have, you know, a, a battalion or company level civil affairs. It didn't work. It, it was too complicated. What the Americans didn't realize until two or three months into the occupation was the Germans in the Rhineland were very well organized already. Their civil government was very efficient. And so what they very quickly learned was, let's move our senior guys into office with their senior guys and follow. So it, the American occupation use of civil civil affairs officers began to follow what the way the Germans had located their county, city, town, each kind of, of locality. And it made so much more sense than trying to force fit that into the American divisional construct. And in the end, it worked out very well. Uh, it also was very convenient that the head German official for all of uh, the Rhineland, was his office was in Koblenz, and he was in the same building as the American commander. There's not a real correlation between being the uber president of the Rhine Valley, but it would be today equivalent of say, perhaps being the governor of New York or California or Texas, one of the bigger, more powerful states. And, and so it was very convenient for the Americans to have this guy in in the same city because they're able to work out a lot of problems before they became bigger issues. Whereas the French, the uh, Belgians, and the British didn't have that same convenience and had to come to Koblenz to, to, to talk to this guy when they wanted to do the same kind of regulations and control. So would you classify it as a hard military occupation? It's funny, uh, hard for both sides. At first, uh, like I said, the Americans were very harsh in their penalties. Everybody was new, was on their, their best behavior because they knew that the Americans were not shy about putting people in jail. And everybody who was a civil affairs officer down to the lowest company level had the authority to have you arrested. At the same time, it was hard for the Americans, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, because of the uh, fraternization rules. And this led to a lot of problems that the Americans had never conceived of, again, in occupying a European country. The Americans said at first that we had planned to have no interference with local government. We're here to occupy you, to accept reparations, and to make sure that you don't start the war again. But they immediately put restrictions on all mail, on ownership of cars. Uh, they censored all newspapers. They even went and made people who owned carrier pigeons license them so that they knew where every form of communication was within their district. Did German citizens benefit from the occupation, and did American soldiers in some ways? Yes and yes. That is a great question. Like I said, the Germans were afraid that these crazy Americans were coming in, and they all read Karl May books when they were children about the crazy cowboys out west, and were very pleased to look around on Sundays and see American soldiers in their churches with them. They celebrated the same religious holidays. But most importantly, what the Americans and even the British and French brought was stability. By having these huge military forces in the Rhineland, the Bolsheviks, the separatists, the Freikorps, the Royalists couldn't get a foothold into, the, into those districts. And so for, all of a sudden, it became an economic benefit to be living in the occupied zone versus living in the unoccupied zone. 
monetary restrictions forced the money to have value, whereas rampant uh, inflation was running loose in unoccupied Germany, things were fairly stable economically. And it was also nice for the Germans for business. All of a sudden, you've got a quarter of a million doughboys living in your backyard, and they're using your restaurants. They're buying any kind of souvenir known to man. The doughboys were, were relentless souvenir collectors. There had been a huge stash of German helmets. And so what they did was they sent those all back to the States. The ladies that ran souvenir shops along the Rhine River found that they could sell iron crosses. And one even wrote to her friend in an unoccupied Germany said, I've sold more iron crosses to American soldiers than the Kaiser awarded to his whole army. Because anything that these guys could buy that said Koblenz, Third Army, American Army, they bought. And so it immediately had a growth industry. Photography was huge in every portrait studio in Koblenz and in Trier and Bitburg and Prum all immediately had a land office business because all the soldiers wanted pictures of themselves in uniforms in Germany. Now, one of the other things that gradually also became important to the why the Germans benefited was as the American army drew down, all those horses that they'd added to, to get them into Germany became access. They also were motorizing the field artillery batteries, and so now you've got more excess donkeys and horses, and you couldn't send them back to France because the rail lines in France were so bad, they couldn't accept the, the shipping of them. Couldn't send them back to the States because it cost more than the horses were worth to ship them back. So what'd they do? They got clever, and they auctioned them to the German farmers. And so what they started doing, because they, they built these remount squadrons, and they went out and picked out all the, the farm boys and wranglers and guys who worked on ranches and had them nurse the horses and the donkeys back to health and sold them in big sales to the Germans. The amazing thing was, in the end, they made so much money off these sales that they'd actually made money for the army from what the army had paid for the horses originally from France and Argentina and Spain, where they'd originally bought the horses. So it was kind of a, an unusual story of, of actually making money while selling off your excess material. At the same time, they sold off everything else. They sold off the uh, table scraps from the, from the mess halls, were sold to German farmers to feed pigs. Old worn-out leather shoes were sold to local German industries who used the leather to make shoes again. Shoes were important at the time. As we'll talk in a minute about the fraternization rule, the sign of a, of a wealthy person was you looked at their feet. If they had good shoes, you knew they were doing well. If they had bad shoes, you knew they were just a local German who had not been able to afford decent shoes. So all this material is being put on the market. Pretty soon they added cars, trucks, even airplanes that were excess all of a sudden became sold into the German market. And again, the occupied zones now had healthy industry and the unoccupied zones were still fighting off the Bolsheviks. You've talked a little bit about fraternization between the Americans and the Germans. Can you talk to us about the fears of the Germanization of the army? Because, I mean, there were certainly fears about that at a very high level. A absolutely. The anti-frat rule was probably the single most hated rule on both sides of, of the fence, whether you were German or American. But the American position was, you will only speak to Germans in the course of duty professionally. That sounds great. It really does sound like a, a great rule. But when you're moving 250,000 American soldiers into, uh, into an area, there weren't barracks for them. So where are you going to put the soldiers to, to live? They're going to, they need a, a roof and they need to eat someplace. And so they billeted them in local citizens' homes. And so the American civil affairs officers ran a roster of, they would come check out your house and say, yeah, you can, uh, you can board four soldiers and you can, or you can board eight soldiers. 
And so next thing you know, they had four doughboys from upstate New York living in their home with them. Well, how can you not talk unprofessionally while you're eating dinner with, with your host and you're sitting around the fireplace having a smoke or killing time? Now, the officers, on the other hand, were usually billeted in hotels or in, uh, in hostels where there was room for them. And so they were kind of segregated from, from the enlisted men. So for them, it was very easy to enforce the only speak professional rule. But at night, the soldiers would roam around the villages. Before long, they knew everybody's name in every town, and they'd go visit their buddies in the houses they were living at. And so you had two levels of, of fraternization, the officers who are, are being segregated from the people and the Americans who are living daily with them and, and enjoying it. Uh, it led to some, some interesting implications within a few months when the first German girls started showing up pregnant. And the American uh, command was worried about Germanization of the command. And also, what do we do with these pregnant girls and their American boyfriends if we punish the soldiers and send them home? That doesn't take care of the girl and the baby. And so there were a lot of, a lot of problems and a lot of discussion on how to handle that. So, and the Army never did well for the first six months they were there. If you were seen in a photograph with a German girl, that was grounds to have you sent home. Immediately could be punished and sent back to the States. And it wasn't until after the Treaty of Versailles was signed, even though the Americans weren't a signatory to that, that they relieved the anti-frat rules. But in the meantime, this problem of, of American boys and German girls was a major issue. German men who were now starting to come back into the, the zone, the, the soldiers who'd been released from POW camps, didn't care much for having American soldiers dating their girlfriends and sisters. Churches would post names of German girls who dated American guys on the front door of their church to say, look, look at these girls, they're sinners. But at the same time, they're already starting to have folk songs about who says it's bad for an American to love a German. Aren't we all the same? And, and, and so some of that started to, to work out, but they never did really resolve the problem of having so many illegitimate births. Now, eventually the Americans gave in and said, we will allow you to get married, but as soon as you do, we're going to have to send you back to the States. And, and so that would solve some of the problem. Now, it's interesting that the French to the South didn't have this fraternization problem because their policy was if a, if a French soldier and a German girl are talking, it's not about politics. And so they, they didn't have the anti-frat rule. The British didn't have the problem because they were only two and a half hours by train ride from the coastal ports and their soldiers could go home and their girlfriends and wives could come visit them in their, in their area. So it was only the Americans that had this, this significant problem. One of the most interesting parts of it is we forget there were a lot of French, British, and American women in the Third Army in the occupation. There were a lot of nurses, there were a lot of telephone operators, there were a lot of logistics specialists that came with the Third Army, and they would be walking down the street arm in arm with an American officer, and the MPs would stop them and demand proof that they weren't a German. And so finally, the, uh, the MPs learned, as I mentioned earlier, to look at the shoes. If the woman was wearing nice shoes, she's probably okay. She's probably French or American. But if she was wearing rough-made German shoes, that we got a problem, and so somebody was going to get arrested. Later in the occupation, which was in the 1921, 22, 23, it seemed like every American was married to a German girl. And by this time, the army was only down to about 20,000 in Germany. It was good duty. The German girls liked the American guys. The American guys, uh, their paycheck was the equivalent of the mayor of Koblenz. So there was nothing that they couldn't, there was no meal they couldn't pay for, no movie they couldn't go see, uh, no holiday trips they couldn't take, even at the lowest rank. Now, so a lot of these uh, German girls and American soldiers got married, 
The problem came was when they went back home and found out that an American sergeant's pay at Fort Riley, Kansas was just about poverty level. So while they were living like kings in Germany, they were really shocked when they found out what you know, to come back to the States. The, the problem with Germanization was never something that they actually ever solved. General Allen, who was the commander for most of the American occupation, he believed that uh, the American army should put a rule against single soldiers uh, getting married while in a, in a theater of operations like Germany which was kind of nice for Allen to say because at the time his son was uh, leading the cavalry detachment and his daughter was there, his wife was there. In fact, the American, by the American Army by this time had gone from being the third army to being the American forces in Germany, AFG. And the Doughboys all laughed and said that really stood for Allen's family in Germany because everybody he had in his family was living there with him in Koblenz. But it became kind of a scandal back in the States that all these American soldiers are marrying German girls. And, and in fact, mothers would come over and yell at General Allen and say, what happened to my son? How did, how did you let him marry a German girl? And Allen said, I couldn't stop him. And even Will Rogers, the, uh, the famous comedian, once said that the, the only reason the American army is still in Germany is because one of the soldiers hasn't found a wife yet. And so that was <laughs> an interesting period for, for both sides. Who were some of the notable U.S. participants in the occupation? You know, that it's, a, it's an incredible list of, of people who cut their teeth in this occupation. That Eventually, there were five Marines who would become Commandant of the Marine Corps were serving in the occupation. Among the big, well-known names, would, of course, was Douglas MacArthur, who had, had an interesting reputation there because he had taken a castle for his headquarters and was doing quite well living on the Rhine. One of uh, General Allen's son-in-laws was a guy named Frank Andrews, who later became the four-star Frank Andrews, and Andrews Air Force Base is named after him. He would have been Eisenhower in World War II if he hadn't been killed in a plane crash. He was supposed to be the ground commander in Europe. Mark Clark, another famous four-star American general, was serving there. Uh, Lightning Joe Collins, uh, a very famous World War II commander in both the Pacific and the Atlantic uh, theaters, he was a young officer there and learned most of his uh, tactical skills while, while serving in, the, in Germany. George Marshall was there. Uh, Clifton Cates, a, a famous Marine. Uh, Lem Shepard, another famous Marine officer. Uh, John Lejeune. Billy Mitchell, the famous American aviator. Not only was Billy Mitchell serving there as the lead aviator in, in the occupation, the guy who had actually presided over his court-martial eight years later was also serving there at the time. The father of the modern American CIA, William Donovan, was serving in, in Germany. Kermit and Teddy Roosevelt, two of the Roosevelt sons of, of Teddy Sr., were both serving in Koblenz in the 1st Division. In fact, they were notified of their father's death while they were serving in, in Germany. You could almost take the complete command uh, structure of, uh, of the American Army in the Korean War, and, and they were learning their skills in, in Koblenz. Uh, Walton Walker, Ned Almond. James Van Fleet, and of course, Douglas MacArthur, and Lem Shepard, again, all, all these guys w were serving together in this occupation. Uh, a guy who later became the football coach for the Detroit Lions was serving there. Jonathan Wainwright, who uh, replaced MacArthur in the Philippines, was serving there as a cavalry detachment commander. And then there was even a next generation, because the Americans were having children, uh, Henry Bukowski, the famous poet of Skid Row, was born there of an American uh, soldier and a German girl in Andernach. And Carl Timmerman was born in Frankfurt to an American soldier and his German wife. He would be the American officer that led the attack across the Rhine in World War II, was the first American officer over the bridge at Remagen 
which was very close to where his father's unit had served uh, during the occupation. So, so there were a lot of notable guys that were in the occupation. The United States doesn't ratify the Versailles Treaty. Can you talk a little bit about how this impacted the American zone and the eventual withdrawal of occupation forces in 1923? You know, it sounds like such a, a minor thing, but it had such major effect. Number one, the U.S. was never really one of the allied powers. They were an associated power, which made them because, you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson wanted to maintain American separative separateness from the Allies in many things, so they became an associated power. What that meant was when the occupation forces all went into Germany, members of the Allied forces, Belgium, France, and Great Britain, all had representatives on these peacekeeping and organizing committees in the Rhineland, and the Americans couldn't because they were an associated power. They were not one of the powers. It got worse. It was going to require a complete peace treaty to end the war. And what happened was, as the months dragged on, the Germans weren't so inclined to sign the peace treaty anymore. In 9, on 11 November, they'd have done anything to end the war. Well, by May, June, they aren't so sure they want to sign and, and accept blame for everything in the war. So the American and other uh, allied countries put their armies on back on alert to attack into Germany. And what they did was they gathered all the forces on the front lines at the very edge of the, of the occupation zones and were within eight hours of starting the war again when the, when the Germans finally agreed to sign the, the Treaty of Versailles. So everybody went back to being happy again, except that the Americans didn't sign the Treaty of Versailles. Germany signed, Belgium signed, everybody signed but the U.S. So we continued to maintain a separateness from the other allied powers. Well, that off, now that meant that whatever the other allies decided, the Americans kind of ended up being the honest broker between the, uh, between the Germans and the other allied powers because they didn't have a dog in the fight. They, uh, they drew their own reparations from Germany. They had their own line of funding from Germany that, that paid for the American army being there, and, and they maintained an independence. General Allen felt he was doing a good job because the, the French said he was too soft on the Germans and the Germans said he was too lenient with his French buddies. So uh, he figured he was walking the right road of keeping uh, a center lane between the, the Germans and the former enemies. Now, as time went by, the, the American army shrank to, down to a thousand men. There was really only a thousand guys left. There was barely enough to hold a, a decent sized battalion formation. But they wouldn't, they couldn't leave. Uh, the conservatives back in Congress still didn't want to sign the uh, Treaty of Versailles, but they wanted to, to keep the Americans there to prove that we'd won the war and to keep the Germans down. The liberals in the Congress wanted to keep the Americans there to keep the French down from oppressing the Germans. And so these guys were, were kind of caught in the middle and, and every month more and more would be sent home and they, little by little, they whittled away on, on General Allen's command until finally uh, in December of 1922, they said, that's it, We're, everybody's going home. The American newspaper that was printed in Koblenz published its last editions and took everything out, sold it, and uh, bought milk for all the German orphans they could find. The rest of the gear that they couldn't pack and ship all got sold. The Americans held their final ceremony in, at the end of January, took down the huge flag on their, on their headquarters, and, and folded it and, and went home. Uh, as the last Americans left the train station in Koblenz, it was noted that the Germans were standing there crying to see their, their American friends leaving. 
Now, was it because the American friends were leaving or they knew the French were coming in to take over the zone? That's still a matter of debate. Two years later, the British did the same thing. They pulled out. They said, we've had enough. We've got to go back to, uh, to Great Britain and we can't afford the cost of this anymore. And as the final British unit marched through Wiesbaden, all the German men removed their hats out of respect for the British occupation army. Six years later, when the, when the French left, the Germans stood outside the train stations and threw rocks at the, at the train cars. So that kind of gives you an idea of, of the, the effect of, of the different occupying methods on, on the local people. In conclusion, what can we say about the American army occupying Germany? It probably is the single most shining success of an American occupation of anywhere until MacArthur takes over Japan. Uh, it, it's a fascinating period because it was a very violent period, and yet the presence of a huge army brought peace. The soldiers went home. With, they'd seen all over Europe. They'd traveled everywhere. They had a bigger picture of what the world was all about. Many of them obviously had German wives now. But the amazing thing was that the fact that so many Americans were there with enough money to do anything they wanted and yet were so well behaved and maintained you know, their discipline all the way through, it really is a, an oppressive feat for the American Army. This has been very interesting. Thank you so much, Al, for sitting down with us today. If people are interested in your book, In a Strange Land, The American Occupation of Germany, where can they find it? Uh, it can be found easily on Amazon or directly from Schiffer Publishing, which is uh, in Pennsylvania. Very easy to, to find through their website. So either way works. Well, thanks again for coming in. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.